Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, pollster Scott Rasmussen assesses the public's hunger for liberty. Cato's Ed Crane talks about liberating the future. Cato's David Bowes weighs in on the financial crisis. Andrew Napolitano of Fox News describes the natural enemy of liberty. And Judge Alex Kaczynski discusses the privacy implications of emerging technologies. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. After an incredible housing bubble and a dramatic crash, the question of what role the Federal Reserve played in all of this has certainly been very prominent uh, since then. There are many problems, of course, facing the Federal Reserve. It's dual mandate, it's attempt to turn its monetary policy into fiscal policy and some other problems. I'm talking with James A. Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute and editor of Cato Journal, and Lawrence H. White, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and professor of economics at George Mason University. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Caleb. So uh, just to get started, uh, Jim, when, when we were talking earlier, you were talking about how the Federal Reserve, in terms of where we are now, is attempting to take its traditional role of monetary policy and take its dual mandate of concern for uh, economic performance and uh, inflation and trying to turn it into sort of a triple mandate that is also engaging in some form of fiscal policy. What do you mean by that? Well, the Fed is engaged in credit allocation now and they've also been buying up toxic assets over the last several years. They've expanded their balance sheet by about $2 trillion and they hold a lot of mortgage-backed securities and other things on their balance sheet that they never had before. They used to basically hold treasuries. They're also trying to manipulate interest rates by keeping long-run rates lower than they otherwise would be, helping finance the federal government, monetizing the debt, and engaging in, therefore, in credit allocation. The interest rate is a relative price. The Fed shouldn't even be involved in determining interest rates. The market should be allowed to determine interest rates. And this latest operation, the twist operation, is going to basically alter the yield curve by depressing long-run interest rates and moving from short-term assets to long-term assets. The Fed shouldn't be involved in this at all. It's distorting, it's underpricing risk, it's underpricing credit by keeping interest rates artificially low, and this creates many distortions in the economy. Lawrence White, take us back to Econ 201 here. Even in the best of times, how does the Fed affect these all-important relative prices? Well, the traditional route for Federal Reserve policy to affect the economy was through Fed purchases and sales of Treasury securities. So the Fed buys Treasury securities. It drives up bond prices. It drives down bond yields. That lowers interest rates throughout the economy because when the Fed purchases Treasury bonds, it creates new bank reserves. Banks lend out in the traditional money uh, supply process, and that lowers interest rates on loans. But by changing interest rates, the Fed affects the price of assets, raises the price of assets relative to the price of consumer goods, and that distorts allocation decisions in the economy. So the Fed drives the market interest rate away from the equilibrium interest rate, the rate that would coordinate savings plans with investment plans. It can create an asset price bubble, as we've seen, uh, in a big way. And housing was uniquely affected because that's where a lot of money goes first? It isn't always housing, but in this case, it was housing because it was on top of sort of special regulatory inducements to expand the pool of home mortgages. And uh, once the ball got rolling where new money was heading into housing and housing prices were rising, a lot of people piled in thinking, well, if house prices only go up, then it's a much safer investment than we used to think. Um, And we got clearly uh, a lot more resources flowing into housing than should have been flowing there. I mean, the the most dramatic evidence I saw this week was that banks are now, with some of the homes that have gone into foreclosure, just knocking them down because nobody wants to buy them at any price that's above what it costs to knock them down. Even two years ago, I was speaking with Gerald O'Driscoll, a senior fellow with the Cato Institute, and asked him if the Federal Reserve really cared about or if the United States really cared about stabilizing home prices. His answer was burn homes in Las Vegas to get the prices <laughs> back to where they should be. In terms of equilibrium rates, Jim Dorn, we don't really know what they are. We can't really know what they are. And given the activism of the Federal Reserve, it seems to be harder in some way to know what equilibrium interest rates ought to be. And how do we get back to that tendency 
to getting rates back to where they should be. Well, let's talk about, you know, the idea that the Fed's going to keep interest rates close to zero, especially short-term rates, you know, for at least another year or so, which the Open Market Committee decided to do several meetings ago. What's a zero interest rate mean? Well, it has no meaning at all because interest rates basically should reflect people's time preferences. And people typically have a preference for current consumption over future consumption, but there's also the productivity factor. So interest rates would never be zero in the real market. The real interest rates would always be above zero. So if you push them towards zero, you're not paying any attention to people's time preferences, to the productivity of capital. It's simply a political manipulation of interest rates. And Bernanke's been criticizing the Chinese for manipulating their exchange rate, but he's doing the same thing to interest rates. And the interest rate, as Larry just pointed out, affects asset prices. Therefore, it affects a whole array of prices. It's an even more important price than the exchange rate in some respects. And the government shouldn't be involved in that distortion, you know, distorting those prices. I mean, you're certainly right. It's hard to know where the equilibrium is when you've got a big player like the Fed mucking around in uh, the allocation of credit, making loanable funds more plentiful, less plentiful, back and forth. And so talk about a system under which the market can discover where the equilibrium is without distortion. We need to think about institutional change that would remove the Fed from the market. I agree. Uh, What we ought to be debating really is the question of rules versus discretion. Right now we have a basically a pure fiat money system with discretionary policy. There's little certainty about the future value of money. And the Fed is now talking about greater transparency and more certainty, but they can't even decide on what their objectives should be. Bernanke has criticized the dual mandate. I mean, he does have to obey the law as the chairman of the Fed, but yet his actions have extended the power of the Fed uh, rather dramatically. And we haven't seen any really significant reduction in the unemployment rate, and yet the Fed's expanded its balance sheet uh, tremendously over the last several years. So this idea that somehow printing money will stimulate the economy, you learn in Economics 201 that economic growth is not generated by printing money. They tried that in Zimbabwe. It led to hyperinflation. And uh, Tom Sargent, who just won the Nobel Prize, wrote a brilliant book on hyperinflations. So printing more money is not the answer. It's a structural problem. And yet the Fed is creating even more structural problems by its interventions with interest rates in this twist operation. So I think things are upside down. When the Fed starts uh, deciding which firms need to be bailed out or which segments of the market deserve how many hundreds of billions of dollars right now, it's going way beyond even the dual mandate. As Jim said, it's like a triple mandate. And I think even going beyond uh, any reasonable construction of the Federal Reserve Act. So I'm not sure Bernanke is actually paying that close attention to what his legal mandate is. Bernanke, in a lot of his statements, it seems that they have found a great deal of authority in a very small section of the Federal Reserve Act. Can you describe that? Well, Section 13.3 says that under extraordinary or exigent circumstances, the Fed can lend money to just about anybody. And it's up to the Fed to decide when those circumstances prevail. But the Fed has gone beyond even just lending money to people. In the case of the Bear Stearns bailout, the Fed bought big chunks of assets. And because it was on dubious legal ground, the New York Fed decided it needed to create a special purpose vehicle for buying those assets. It created something called Maiden Lane, and it did a similar thing when it bought assets from AIG. And that's what I was referring to when I said they're on kind of shaky legal ground there because there's nothing in that, even that emergency section of the Federal Reserve Act that contemplates the Fed taking ownership interest in financial institutions. And the Fed was basically uh, allowing collateral toxic mortgage-backed assets that the markets didn't know how to value. And the Fed was accepting this as collateral for loans. That's totally against the budget rule. Good collateral being the most important part of that, right? Yeah. That's right. It's supposed to be a liquidity function and not a bailout function, not a solvency support operation. And that line, the Bernanke Fed, is completely blurred. On November 16th of this year, the Cato Institute will host its 29th annual monetary conference. The title is Monetary Reform in the Wake of Crisis. Representative Ron Paul will be the keynote speaker. Of course, uh, Jim Dorn and Lawrence H. White will be among the speakers as well. So monetary reform, there are many different directions that the United States could go in terms of altering how we get our money and how we relate to the state with respect to our money. 
So what do you gentlemen believe? Well, one of the purposes of this conference is to look at fundamental monetary reform. Larry wrote a very nice piece uh, in the Cato Journal that just came out from last year's conference on the fact that if we had something like the gold standard, which provides an automatic feedback mechanism without a central bank and we had free banking, that would put us on a much more stable and certain path with respect to the future value of money. We're lacking those institutions now. So one of the things we want to do at the conference is to investigate this in more detail and talk about how we make a transition from a pure fiat money system like we have today to a system with some type of a stability factor, whether it's a gold standard or something else. Uh, You could have a rule that constrained the Fed and still have a paper money system, but even James Madison questioned that with respect to how you would enforce that. And uh, one nice thing about the gold standard, if people accept the ethics of the gold standard, which limits the size of government, it's an automatic mechanism. It's a market-driven process. It's a forecast-free monetary system. Today, everything is based upon forecasting. And uh, they're put more and more emphasis on these uh, macro models, uh, but none of them predicted the financial crisis. And uh, they're not doing a very good job right now. Lawrence H. White, uh, describe this gold standard with free banking. Describe what a bubble looks like in a world under that regime. Well, what I argued in the paper that uh, Jim referred to was that bubbles don't get started under that kind of system. You've got uh, a negative feedback loop instead of a positive feedback loop. That is, if uh, people start piling into some kind of investment boom, it's going to raise interest rates in the market. There isn't any agency to short circuit that the way the Fed did during the housing bubble, right? The Fed kept interest rates from rising such that scarce loanable funds had to be rationed in an appropriate way. They just said, oh, more credit for everybody. And in that kind of regime, credit bubbles get out of hand. But where you have a limited supply of reserves because it's limited by the scarcity of gold and by the prudence of banks not to overextend their uh, ratio of credit to reserves, you have a built-in... break on the expansion of uh, credit bubbles. So in the 2000s, the Federal Reserve enabled a lot of uh, private actors to avoid making difficult choices about uh, where their resources were going to go. It seems now that the Federal Reserve is enabling the United States federal government from having to make difficult choices about where tax dollars are going. The old uh, phrase people used to use about central banking was that the central banker's job was to take away the punch bowl when this party started to get out of hand. But the current Fed's uh, mantra seems to be whenever the party seems to be sobering up, we're going to spike the punch bowl again. They seem to be determined not to let asset prices come back down to a reasonable level. Yeah, that's exactly right. Bernanke and other central bankers have said that the objective of the central bank is not to target asset prices, but that's exactly what they've been doing. And, uh, you know, you got the Greenspan put and the Bernanke put. Basically, investors feel that if the stock market starts to go down, the Fed will simply come in and have another quantitative easing or something else and uh, stimulate asset prices. And with that expectation, you know, just like they did with Bear Stearns, they bailed out Bear Stearns, but they didn't bail out Lehman. If they stop abruptly with this Greenspan put or Bernanke put, as the case is now, this is going to surprise markets and there could be a sharp drop. And that's what uh, Ken Rogoff and uh, Carmen Reinhardt Reinhardt, uh, pointed out that you could be having a big shock unexpectedly from this type of monetary policy in particular. There are two ways to bring asset prices back in line with consumer prices. One is to let asset prices fall. The other is to raise consumer prices. And Rogoff, unfortunately, is one of those advocating that we need a little dose of inflation, or actually a big dose of inflation, to uh, write down some of the government debt in real terms. And so When you have a politically controlled central bank, that's a real danger that uh, it's going to be harnessed to the fiscal needs of the treasury. Let's talk about inflation as a moral issue. Inflation is sort of theft on an installment plan when it comes to people's savings and assets that they own. How have the views of Americans sort of changed with regard to inflation? Well, let me just address that briefly. I think Americans are scared of inflation, but uh, the Fed has really emphasized deflation. Pernicke is scared of deflation, but when you expand your balance sheet by a couple trillion dollars, the only reason there hasn't been more inflation now is because the Fed is paying interest on excess reserves and banks are keeping tremendous excess reserves for a number of reasons. 
the Fed has talked about removing the interest rate on excess reserves, and if they did that, I'm sure the, the money supply would grow faster and nominal incomes would go up and there'd be inflationary expectations. I mean, inflation now, headline inflation in the United States is more than 4%. If you don't just look at core inflation, you look at headline inflation. They imposed wage price controls uh, back in 1971 when inflation was what, about 3%, 2.4% or 3%. So you get inflation rising, you get price controls again, you get even a larger government, and they won't control inflation directly. They'll do it indirectly through wage price controls, and that just suppresses inflation, as we learned during the 70s. Yeah, we've got a a mounting fiscal problem, a mounting sovereign debt problem. And uh, Jim referred to Tom Sargent earlier. Sargent wrote a very important piece with Neil Wallace on what he called uh, unpleasant monetarist arithmetic, the basic point of which was if you get to the point where markets no longer want to buy your debt, then the printing press is going to have to cover the deficit. Right? If you can't control the deficit and if you've sort of maxed out your credit card, then all that's left is printing money. And there is a danger of that going forward and markets are responding to that danger. And you're right. I mean, compared to just defaulting on your debt, which is one-time outright theft of the principal, inflating away the debt is just as uh, dishonest but on the installment plan. We've got this big overhang of bank reserves now that the Fed created, and that's got the market a little skitterish, and I think that helps explain why the price of gold has been so high in recent months. People don't know what the inflation rate is going to be going forward. As Jim said, Bernanke claims that uh, there's a danger of deflation, but I don't think that's true anymore, and inflation's rising, as Jim said, uh, up to about 4% now. We have just a few minutes left here, but uh, one thing that has confused and puzzled me for years now, which is if the fear coming out of the Federal Reserve is deflation, how does that square with what we were told for the years leading up to the financial crisis and, and since then that one of the big problems that led us into this crisis was Americans having too few assets, too little equity, and too little savings. Well, I think Bernanke is afraid of balance sheet deflation. You know, these toxic assets, the bad investments were made, and the Fed wanted to buy those things up uh, to prevent the the deflation. Well, they still haven't cleaned up all the balance sheets, and there's still a lot of off-balance sheet uh, things going on, and the private market and mortgage-backed securities hasn't really been restored, probably for good reason. But you look at the leverage of the big financial institutions, and if you include the Fed there, the Fed's got fantastic leverage. So we're making the same mistakes we made prior to 2008 in many respects, keeping interest rates too low for too long, not getting the uh, deficit in order, the fiscal deficit. And uh, as Bastiat said, one of my favorite quotes from Bastiat, he said, once the government gets done draining the present in terms of higher taxes, it then drains the future in terms of debt. And one step beyond that, you inflate, try to inflate the debt away, then you get even bigger problems. It's true that we had very little saving during the housing bubble because people treated the appreciation of their house as a form of wealth building. It turned out to be illusory. And so now we do have a situation where there isn't a lot of real savings to support capital formation going forward. The Fed seems to be concerned that uh, people who are trying to repair their balance sheets, deleveraging their own households, are not spending enough. But really, if you look at the numbers, it's not consumer spending that is the problem right now. It's investment. And to create a hospitable environment for investment going forward is the real problem. And for that, the Fed needs to stop being hyperactive and go back to a a more predictable, steady path. And something has to be done to resolve the fiscal problem because in an environment where you know there are going to be future taxes, but you don't know what they're going to be taxes on, it's hard to choose your investments. We will leave it there. Lawrence H. White, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and professor of economics at George Mason University. And James A. Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at Cato and editor of Cato Journal. The new edition of Cato Journal has a lot of the articles presented at uh, last year's Monetary Conference. I want to remind you again, November 16th, 2011, Cato will hold its 29th annual Monetary Conference, Monetary Reform in the Wake of Crisis. Representative Ron Paul will be the keynote speaker. Also featuring uh, Robert Zellick, James Grant, Jeffrey Lacker, Alan Meltzer, John Allison, and of course, Jim Dorn and Lawrence H. White. You can learn more about that at our website, Cato.org.
If we're all in this together, as many progressives say, what place does liberty have? The only legitimate goal of government, says Cato founder Ed Crane, is to secure liberty. He made the case for liberty's advance at Cato Club 200 in September. I really think this is Cato's time. We've been around 34 or five years, and I'm very proud of what we've achieved uh, during that period of time. But I really think that this is the time now when more Americans than ever that I've experienced are asking, you know, what are the right answers? Nobody believes the politicians in Washington anymore, and that's a very healthy thing. And yet the Cato Institute has been right on monetary policy. We've been right on Social Security. We've been right on tax reform policy. We've been right on foreign policy. And I think an increasing number of people, particularly in the media, but in the Tea Party movement and elsewhere, have come to realize that Cato, you know, really has thought about this, and they're right, and we should start listening to them. I'm excited that we're at a point in history where people are going to look at the Cato Institute, and that's why I think it's so important that we're expanding when other people are contracting, because this is our time. And you know who else's time it is, and that's Ayn Rand. You know, the Atlas Shrugged is such an incredibly prescient book. But the thing about Rand was that she said that we can have all these individual battles over Social Security, over tax policy or whatever, and we can win them. We can win most of them. But if we don't base them on philosophy, we're going to lose the battle. We're going to lose the war. We can win the battles, I guess, uh, the way, is the way to put it. But I think that's important. I think the other side is much more in tune to the idea of convincing people that their philosophy of collectivism, really, is what is going to prevail. And we uh, end up in a kind of defensive stance not defending our position so much on philosophy as on just that we're going to save money or um, our approach would be more effective. And moveon.org is the kind of leading radical progressive grassroots organization. And they sent out a fundraiser that said, had this sentence, as progressives, we share a core belief that we are all in this together. And that is a philosophical statement. We are not all in this together. We are individuals. And that's what American exceptionalism is about, that the government's there to protect our rights to live our lives the way we want to. This nonsensical, pernicious concept that we're all in this together is everywhere out there. Even our distinguished president, just uh, September 14 not that long ago, said, I got fed up with that kind of game plan, and we've been seeing it for too long, too long. We're in a national emergency. It's it's called Barack Obama. (laughs) We've been grappling with a crisis for three years, and instead of getting folks to rise up above partisanship in a spirit that says we're all in this together, there's that phrase, we've got folks who are purposely dividing, purposely thinking just in terms of how does this play out just in terms of this election. Well, As George Will points out, politics is about man's relationship to the state. And these elections should be contentious because this is a country predicated on the rights of individuals to pursue their own goals, their own lives. And the government's there to protect those rights. And Barack Obama and his supporters believe the government should control our lives. And so for him to say, well, why are you debating this. We're all in this together. Do what I say. We're going to have socialized medicine. We're going to take over education. We're going to tax the productive. He doesn't want to argue about it. Buddy, what's your problem? We're all in this together. We're all Americans, right? And people let this slide. The other side is not willing to stand up and say, wait a minute. You know, we're all Americans, but what America is about is we pursue our own values, our own goals. And we don't want to follow you just in the name of being in this together. Public opinion matters in the fight over taxes and spending. At Cato Club 200 in September, pollster Scott Rasmussen gave a frank assessment of how Americans think about free markets and the importance of the words people use to describe freedom.
I'm a little surprised that Ed didn't mention my greatest career achievement. My work was featured in a Michael Moore film on the evils of capitalism. <laughs> Probably the only person here who can claim that. And the reason I mention that is because it's kind of a good kicking off point for some of the things I want to talk about. We did a poll and we asked people, what's better, capitalism or socialism? 53% picked capitalism. Among people under 30, one-third picked capitalism, one-third socialism, and one-third said, hey, we're under 30. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Moore took that to say, wow, this is a great talking point. I'm going to put it in a movie. Capitalism is on its dying days. We went and explored with some more polling. And one of the things that we found was that 78% of Americans, 8 out of 10 people, said they preferred a free market economy over a government-managed economy. So I explained this to a friend of mine who's an economist, and he said, well, that shows how stupid the American people are. They don't understand they're the same thing. But what it really showed was that my friend didn't understand public opinion. When Americans today think of capitalism, what they think of is a system where big companies can keep the money when times are good and they get bailed out when times are bad. They think of regulators who make decisions and then walk through a revolving door and get a contract. They think it's a corrupt system of crony capitalism. And we can argue all we want about that's not really fair, that's not what capitalism is, but the fight over that wording is already lost. Capitalism in many minds has become a problem. Free markets, competition, very well received. In fact, on any issue, if we ask about a bank or an industry or a company and say, what's better in terms of helping keep costs under control or getting better customer service? What's better, government regulation or more competition? Competition wins every single time. But we still have to, we tend to forget about the importance of these words and the way you present things in a political environment. You know, think tanks are great, and it's nice that we have a lot of policy experts here, but sooner or later you have to connect with a public. I guess a couple months ago now, we had a debt ceiling debate, or a debacle, depending on how you want to talk about it, and we had this silly situation going on where we have $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities, and Congress spent five months arguing about whether or not to raise the official debt ceiling by one or two trillion dollars. And as they were doing that, we did an awful lot of polling, and the main discussion point eventually came back down to President Obama saying, you know, we need a balanced approach. Some extra revenue, some spending cuts along the way. And Republicans said, no, we are opposed to tax cuts. And when we polled a choice between those two options, people overwhelmingly went with President Obama's position. But then, if we changed the wording just a little bit, and said, suppose you had a choice between two candidates, one who backs President Obama's position and wants a balanced approach with higher taxes and some spending cuts, or somebody else who wants to reduce the deficit by spending cuts alone. The person who wanted the spending cuts alone did better. Now, you might say that's the same thing, but the person hearing the question heard in the second phrasing of it a solution. They, heard, they were trying to figure out how are we going to reduce the deficit and the answer was with spending cuts alone. When the person was just talking about opposing tax hikes, they were kind of off point. And what happens in our country today is we have a great belief in individual rights. People think that we have inalienable rights. They think the government can't take things away from them. But they don't see any connection to how belief in those rights and in freedoms provides solutions for society. And it's filling that gap that's going to be one of the challenges we have to face in the coming years. Now, you know, I could go through and, and look at your agenda. You've got some great workshops, and I can give you all kinds of numbers to show you that the Ed Crane vision of the world is enormously popular. You're talking about education tomorrow. 73% of Americans believe that we're not getting a good return on our $700 billion investment in education. That's pretty good foundation. If you're not getting a good return on that, maybe there's room for some change. People don't think at the college level that we should be providing funding for kids who want to go to Yale or to Harvard or to other schools. You know, the schools have big enough endowments they can do it themselves. Uh, there is some belief that we should help the poor, but it's only 
to a modest level to help them get into perhaps a community college or something. So yeah, there's some good things in that. Uh, you look at the Afghanistan discussion you're going to have. Most Americans say it's time to bring troops home. That includes 40% of Republicans today. When you talk about health care, you know what? 81% of Americans believe it's going to cost more than projected. Most believe it's going to increase the deficit, increase the cost of health care. It's going to hurt the quality of care, and that's why most people want it repealed. But if we just talk about those things in a logical sense, it doesn't really do any good. Because that's not the way public opinion forms in this country. If you can picture a river and you get a heavy rainstorm, on the, on the surface of the river there's a lot of raindrops, a lot of turmoil and splashing around. But if you go down a foot or two beneath the surface, there's a strong current that moves on and you don't even know it's raining out. What happens in America is that current underneath the surface moves for a few decades. Public opinion is always ahead of the politicians on almost every major change in American history. And so you need to look at where those currents are and see what's going to happen. We were all brought up to believe there was a shot heard around the world in 1775 that sparked the revolution. But in reality, we know that for decades before that, colonists began to think of themselves as different from the mother country. And we had the Stamp Act and that unpleasantness in the Boston Harbor and all kinds of other situations that sparked a revolution. But the ideas had been building for a long time. And it's important to note, Thomas Jefferson didn't write the Declaration to inspire the revolution. The war started 15 months ahead of time. He encapsulated what people were talking about around him. When you lay out all the events that made up the financial crisis, the size of the government's intervention, even from the very beginning, is hard to downplay. Cato Executive Vice President David Bowes laid out the larger lesson of the financial crisis at Cato Club 200 in September. Throughout the past decade, throughout basically the decade of the Bush administration, the Federal Reserve was pumping money into the economy. The federal funds rate was pushed down to a record low of 1%. You can just see federal interest rates plunging there during the early years of the Bush administration. Stayed there for a year. The real Fed funds rate was actually negative during part of this time, meaning that nominal rates were lower than the rate of inflation. And our colleague Steve Hankey summarized the result as this set off the mother of all liquidity cycles and yet another massive demand bubble. Cheap money, easy lending, rising home prices, all that money and all those buyers pushed housing prices up sharply, but all good things, at least all good things based on unsustainable prices, must come to an end. And when housing prices started to fall, borrowers ran into trouble, financial companies threatened to fall, an ever-expanding series of bailouts began issuing from the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department. And instead of the usual response to businesses that make bad decisions, which is let them go into bankruptcy or reorganization, let their workers and assets go to more effective companies, the federal government stepped in to keep every existing enterprise operating, and the politicians and the pundits started blaming capitalism for this problem. And what did the politicians then do to solve the problems created by overregulation, debt, and monetary expansion? Well, they passed new regulations. They piled up $4 trillion of new debt in three years, and they ran interest rates back down to below 1% again. Exactly the same things that they had done before, and there is a new push from the Justice Department for quota-based lending for people who otherwise wouldn't qualify for home loans. Now, I'm no economic forecaster, but this doesn't sound like a good plan. We need to remember that these people have awesome power, but they are fundamentally klutzes. Their system doesn't work on the grand scale or the small. And there are reasons for that. I could go through these case studies all day, but I want to think a little bit about what are the reasons. And I think economists often identify three problems that underlie socialism or any attempt to bring the principles of socialism, of planning and intervention, into even a capitalist economy. Number one, the incentive problem. 
taxes and transfers distort incentives. They discourage work and investment. They encourage sloth and rent seeking. In the capitalist system, you have an incentive to find out what customers want and supply it to them at a low cost. You have an incentive to find a way to keep your costs down. Take away those incentives, you get bad results. And then there's the knowledge problem. This is what Ludwig von Mises and Hayek really made their reputation about explaining why calculation and prices are so important. Prices tell us what people want and how best to fulfill their wants. Price controls, regulations, and subsidies all assume that somebody in Washington or somebody in Albany or Sacramento or wherever knows what should be produced better than the complex voluntary market process knows. And then there's the political problem. And when it's full-fledged socialism, you call it the totalitarian problem. The problem that somebody with the power will make all the decisions. In the United States, I wouldn't call it the totalitarian problem. I'll call it just the political problem. It is that those with the power make the decisions, and they make them on the basis of political clout because it's impossible to make right decisions. No bureaucrat in Washington can know what the right allocation of capital, the right investment of funds, the right number of schools, the right number of green jobs versus brown jobs in any community is. That's what the competitive market process is for. So if you can't know the right answer, then you're going to impose answers based on your own political ideology or power. And I'm not going to take time to go into it, but I think you can look at the past week's headline stories about Solyndra, and you see every one of these, the incentive problem, the calculation problem, and the political problem on display there. You abstract from the market, you pull yourself out of the competitive market process, and you will absolutely find all of these problems working to undermine right decisions. The experts in Washington tell us we need to plan more, but it's planning that gets us into these messes. What works better is each person planning for himself, secure in his property and his rights, free to create and innovate and exchange in a free market. And every time we interfere with those freedoms, we get another fine mess. The natural enemy of liberty is unrestrained government power. Fox News broadcaster and former judge Andrew Napolitano talked about some recent history of liberty and its enemies at Cato Club 200 in September. Okay, it's the War of 1812. The British are trying to take the country back again. And they are marching through the town of Upper Marlboro, Maryland. And when they're in this town of Upper Marlboro, Maryland, British troops capture six residents from the town and hold them as hostages and basically say to the town governing board, disband your militia, because the Brits were fighting militias, local militias. Disband your militia or we will execute these hostages. Whereupon John Hodges, who was the chairman of the town governing authority, went unarmed to the British captain and said, We've just captured four of your soldiers. How about if we make a trade? We'll give you back your four soldiers. You give us back our six town people. The British captain said, fine. The four British soldiers went back to their colleagues. The six unharmed hostages went back to town. The war was over. The British lost. The British went home. The Americans won. There was a big parade. There were parades all over the country. There was an enormous parade in Upper Marlboro, Madison, in honor of Mayor Hodges because of what he had just done. At the end of the parade, he was met by two federal marshals who handed him an indictment that had been handed down against him for treason, providing aid and comfort to the enemy in wartime by returning the four British soldiers. Now, let's see, it's 1812. Whose Justice Department did this? The guy who wrote the Constitution, James Madison. This story actually has a happy and bizarre ending because Mayor Hodges is tried. 
and there's really not much of an issue to try. He's not going to deny that he negotiated the exchange. It was public knowledge. He was lauded in, at a parade. Everybody knew that he had saved uh, the hostages. It wasn't really a factual issue for the jury. It was a legal issue. And the legal issue was, did this exchange of prisoners constitute treason under the Constitution? And the federal judge, it was a federalist who had been appointed by John Adams, said to the jury, I'm telling you, members of the jury, as a matter of law, you must convict the mayor. I'm telling you, under the law, this constitutes treason. Now, go into that room in the basement of the building and deliberate. Whereupon the foreperson of the jury said, we don't have to deliberate. We've already decided he's not guilty. Everybody erupts in the courtroom. The mayor is set free. This is actually the first recorded case, United States versus Hodges in American history, of jury nullification, in which the jury decided it doesn't matter if he did what the government said he did. He shouldn't have been prosecuted. And in our view, it does not constitute a violation of the law. I've always been fascinated with this idea of people using power in a way that interferes with freedom. It doesn't even advance the ball of what they were trying to advance. My God, the country was celebrated. British had just burnt the Capitol building and burnt the White House. Why would they be prosecuting this guy for treason? Because they can, because they have libido dominandi. Because something happens to these people when they acquire unrestrained power and the decision to prosecute is essentially unrestrained. The decision to seek the indictment doesn't require any approval by a judicial officer. And of course, if you have Federalists versus Anti-Federalists, if you have Progressives versus Libertarians, and the judge happens to be one of yours, then you have a better shot if you are running the Justice Department at getting the conviction put through. I'm going to fast forward a little bit to um, what happened after 9-11. A lot of you have probably heard me criticize the Patriot Act. Patriot Act, of course, brought us 360 degrees back to agents writing their own search warrants. We fought a revolution in large measure because of the writs of assistance, because British soldiers could enter your home without a search warrant, but with a piece of paper that they wrote. As you know, the Patriot Act authorizes federal agents to do the same. It authorizes them to go to your doctor, your lawyer, your banker, your grocer, your hospital, your HMO, your computer server, and serve a piece of paper in which they have authorized themselves to seek this information. Those things are called national security letters, just like the British ones were called writs of assistance. They are the same thing. They are self-written search warrants in which an agent of the executive branch, uninterfered with by the judicial branch, as the Fourth Amendment requires, authorizes himself or herself to enter upon private premises and obtain information that one would expect would be retained as private. Before the Patriot Act, if the government wanted your computer records or your banking records, it would serve notice on you that it was going to get them. They're not in your hands. You can't destroy them. It's not like there's a severed head in the refrigerator and the government is worried you're going to destroy the evidence. The documents that they want are in the custody of a third party. So you have the right to go before a federal judge and challenge whether or not the federal government is entitled to that information and force them to lay out their case against you. Under the Patriot Act, of course, not only are you not informed of this, but you're never even told that they obtained it. And unless there's something in there that they're going to use in the prosecution of you, you'll never even know that they have it. All right, two FBI agents walk into a library in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and one of them has a self-written search warrant under his arm. I know it sounds like a joke. Two guys walk into a bar, one of them has a duck under his arm. Another story for another time. They serve this self-written search warrant on the librarian, and they tell this librarian, under the Patriot Act, you cannot tell anyone that we have handed you this search warrant. You can't tell your spouse you can't tell your priest in confession. You can't even tell your lawyer. You can't even answer truthfully in a public courtroom under oath that you received this, or we can prosecute you for revealing the fact that we served this on you. She was 85 years old. She looked at these 30-something FBI agents and said, who the hell are you? And she handed the search warrant to her 75-year-old assistant. 
whereupon the FBI prosecuted them for revealing to each other the receipt of the search warrant. A federal judge in Bridgeport, Connecticut, we're now a year and a half later, on the eve of trial said to the prosecutors, I'm about to declare the Patriot Act unconstitutional. Do you still want to prosecute these two who are now 87 and 77? And the federal prosecutors said, no. We don't want to risk it being found unconstitutional. We don't want to have to defend this in an appellate court. So, did we fight a revolution against a king and a parliament because he sent and they sent their agents to break down our doors without the intervention of a judge? Did we write a constitution which requires that if the government wants something from you, it has to show probable cause of crime on your part? And if the judge accepts the probable cause and decides to issue the search warrant, only then will it be issued? Only to have our elected representatives visit upon us the very same thing that the king and the parliament visited upon the colonists. The natural enemy of liberty is unrestrained government power. And the antidote for unrestrained government power is an aroused, informed, and angry citizenry that understands the laws of nature, of nature's God, and of our humanity. When we are confronted with situations of the clash between liberty and power, we cannot shrink from this confrontation. We must be strong enough to face it directly. This is the hand that fate has dealt us. Not every generation has the opportunity to defend liberty in its greatest hour of danger. That hour is now. We are that generation. We must accept this, and we must attack it with great zeal. Emerging technologies are almost always disruptive in some ways, but norms emerge and rules are established. But modern technology also has implications for how courts interpret our rights. Alex Kaczynski, Chief Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, spoke about privacy and technology at Cato's Constitution Day event held in September. I want to talk to you a little bit about privacy today. And, and we've been trying to protect our privacy ever since Adam uh, went off looking for a fig leaf. But according to conventional wisdom, technology has made us care less and less about it. And it's easy to see how someone might get that idea. We trade our privacy for convenience in small ways every day. When I drove to the airport earlier this week, I hooked up my GPS just because it made it a lot easier to uh, make sure I wouldn't get lost. And uh, at the airport, I um, overheard uh, somebody who just couldn't wait to tell everyone uh, around the person on the phone, everybody who was listening, how he was recovering from his recent vasectomy. <laughs> and you've seen any episode of 24, you know that we probably all get captured on a piece of security footage when we walk into the hotel where we're now staying. And almost no one here would be surprised to find photos of himself on Facebook or above the law after a night out, <laughs> especially uh, in the company of a well-known uh, judicial super hottie. I, I see some of you tweeting uh, right now about it. <laughs> Technology uh, has undoubtedly made it easier for others to figure out what's going on in our lives. And that means it's easier for the government to do the same thing. Take cell phones. Almost 90% of Americans own them, and I'd be surprised if there's anyone here who doesn't have a cell phone. Probably be easier if I ask people to raise their hands if you have more than one cell phone. I think I'd get more hands. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but how often do you consider that they can be used to pinpoint exactly where you are at all times? If you have a smartphone with a camera, then the phone will encode your location every time you take a picture. 
So let's say you visit the grandkids and take a bunch of incredibly cute photos and you're so proud of them, uh, you decide to put them online where a bunch of creeps can view them. <laughs> At that point, you've not only given them the picture of the kids, but if they go into the metadata, they can find out exactly where they live by finding the GPS information. But now let's say you've got an older dumb phone like I do. Your carrier still knows uh, where you are and where you've been. This is because your phone constantly announces your location by pinging the nearest cell tower. And this phone company can also get your location by pinging your phone. Picks up a phone number and says, where is uh, this phone? And can ping you and find out. Now, between uh, September 2008 and October 2009, Sprint Nextel pinged its customers on behalf of the police, on behalf of law enforcement, more than 8 million times. It, it sold the service. The company eventually uh, established a web portal where police could just go in and self-serve. They would put in the uh, phone number of a uh, Nextel customer and be able to ping it and find out where that person is. As Judge uh, Ginsburg, uh, uh, which you've heard was Cato's first Simon lecture, pointed out in a recent opinion, a person who knows all of another's travels can deduce whether he's a weekly churchgoer, a heavy drinker, irregular at the gym, an unfaithful husband, an outpatient receiving medical treatment, an associate of particular individuals or political groups, and not just one such fact about the person, but all such facts. I must say, we'll all be in trouble if the authorities decide to ping our cell phones tonight. They'll finally have discovered that right-wing conspiracy that they've been looking for. <laughs> Now, there's been very little outcry about cell phone tracking, and it's not because we don't expect information that can be collected from our phones to remain private. What's going on is that most people simply don't realize that they're carrying a tracking device whenever they carry a phone. Judge Slovita made exactly this point in a recent Third Circuit opinion. She said, it is unlikely that cell phone customers are aware that cell phone providers collect and store historical location information. Therefore, when a cell phone maker, uh, user makes a call, there's no indication to the user that he's making a call, that the making the call will also locate the caller. When a cell phone user receives a call, he hasn't voluntarily exposed anything at all. This is the case, of course, with every time we buy products that transmit information about us without giving us fair warning, like a pair of underwear from Walmart. A Wall Street Journal recently reported that the superstore plans to start attaching small trackable RFID or RFID tags to individual pieces of clothing in order to keep tabs on the company's inventory. One county in California has already started uh, implanting RFID chips in school uniforms to track preschoolers. They are in credit cards, passports, and even some ticket stubs. Soon they'll be in all customer loyalty cards and driver's licenses, and so we'll be transmitting um, a treasure trove of information every time we walk into a store or drive down the highway. A smart electrical meters are another worry. In 2009, the federal government invested billions of dollars to develop a smart grid that will provide detailed information about home energy consumption. Like cell phones and RFID chips, the technology transmits a large cache of personal information about activities within the home. So what can we conclude from all of this? I think it's fair to say that privacy is not dead as an ideal. People still crave it and expect it, despite the inroads made by technology. In many ways, people expect more privacy as a result of technology and feel resentful and angry when they learn that technology has betrayed them. At the same time, it's clear that people are willing to trade quite a bit of privacy for a little bit of convenience. No one here, suspect, I suspect, is going to stop carrying a cell phone, or even that second cell phone, even though we fully, we're fully aware it's tracing our location just about every moment of the day. Now, the government is perfectly happy to take advantage of our devil's bargain by dipping into available stores of information, about us, and it will also create databases of its own to keep track of our movements and habits in an effort to solve past crimes and deter future crimes. And this brings us to the Fourth Amendment, which provides that people shall be secure in their homes, papers, and effects. 
As originally conceived and interpreted for most of our history, this was a protection against invasion of property. If the government wanted to enter our homes or read our papers or examine our things, it had to comply with the requirements of the Fourth Amendment. This all worked pretty well so long as life unfolded in the concrete spaces of the physical world. After all, you couldn't read my diary or business records without entering the building where they were stored and you, without actually physically getting a hold of them, of the notebook or the ledger and reading what's in there. Now this all changed with the advent of the telephone. In 1928, the Supreme Court got a case involving the criminal prosecution based on evidence obtained by tapping defendant's phone line. Officials, uh, police never entered his home or office. Instead, they climbed the telephone pole in front of the house and just uh, tapped the lines. The Supreme Court made short work of the case. The police didn't commit a trespass on the defendant's property and thus did not invade any interest protected by the Fourth Amendment. Now, this didn't sit well with Justice Brandeis, who almost 40 years earlier had co-authored a highly influential article in the Harvard Law Review entitled The Right to Privacy. It continues to be one of the most frequently cited law review articles of all time. Now, Justice Brandeis dissented in Olmstead, the wiretapping case. He argued that the police had violated defendant's right to privacy by listening to his private phone conversation. In effect, Brandeis was urging the Supreme Court to jettison static concepts of property rights as a benchmark for the Fourth Amendment. Instead, he argued the Fourth Amendment protects the right to be left alone. Under his view, the Fourth Amendment didn't stop at the front door of our houses or businesses, nor was it limited to gaining physical access to the content of communications. Rather, Brandeis argued the Fourth Amendment protected an intangible concept of personal autonomy that defends us against much more than physical invasion of our property rights. If Justice Brandeis' 1928 dissent has a surprisingly modern ring to it, it's because the idea he planted took root and eventually became the Fourth Amendment as we know it today. In 1967, the Supreme Court decided Katz versus the United States, which involved the police taping of a phone conversation. Katz was in a phone booth making illegal bets, and the police were on to him. So they placed a tape recorder on the outside of the phone booth and managed to record Katz's half of the telephone call. The government argued that it had fully complied with Olmstead, so the taping was just fine. But in a world of ubiquitous telephones, teletypes, telegraphs, tiny microphones, and tape recorders, justices were no longer willing to limit the Fourth Amendment to invasions of property rights. Instead, the court held that the police violated Cass's Fourth Amendment rights because he had a reasonable expectation of privacy when he closed the door of the phone booth. Katz overruled Olmsted and discarded the property-based foundation on which it rested. In its place came a new standard. The Fourth Amendment protects an individual reasonable expectation of privacy. The protection extends to whatever places and communication an individual can reasonably expect to keep private. Now, this standard has three important features, one good, one second so-so, and the third pretty bad. The first is that the standard comports much more with the modern way of life. In a world where people communicate electronically, travel extensively by public transport, and stay in places that are not their own homes, the new standards uh, better reflect the values of the Fourth Amendment. The not-so-good feature is that the boundaries of the new standard aren't as well-defined as uh, property rights. It's often hard to know in advance whether a particular invasion of privacy is also a constitutional violation. This leaves both the government and the public uncertain about their respective rights. They have to wait for the courts to tell them afterwards whether someone's rights were violated. And the issue often arises after the police have seized highly incriminating evidence, so the finding constitutional violation very likely means a guilty guy will walk. So the incentive is to find that the police didn't conduct an illegal search, at least that's the sort of the pull. Now the worst aspect of the new regime, however, is tied up with the word reasonable. The courts will not protect an individual's expectation of privacy if it's not reasonable. 
And how do you determine whether something is reasonable? The test is whether we, as a society, recognize the privacy interests as one worthy of protection. And when it comes to privacy, what you and others in society think and do has a profound effect on my rights. The fact that I consider certain conduct to be private is of little consequence if most people act like it's not. The scope of my right to privacy thus depends on common expectations which are shaped by the actions and attitudes of everyone else. So is there any way to prevent further erosion in our privacy and perhaps gain back some of the ground we've lost? I want to propose a three-part program for doing so. The first part is for an education campaign that will make people aware that privacy is a fragile and shared resource and that failure to respect and enforce privacy boundaries by even a few will erode the privacy of all of us. We've had any number of such education campaigns in the last few years, and they have changed many aspects of our lives. It wasn't so long ago it was perfectly acceptable to smoke in all manner of private and public places, but as we've become aware of the dangers of smoking, it started to disappear from airplanes and restaurants, bars and music events. Our eating habits have changed as we consume less fat and more nutritious foods. We recycle, we wear helmets and seat belts. Some of these changes have come about as a result of legislation, but the legislation itself was the result of changing perceptions and attitudes. Now, I propose that everyone listening to my remarks and those who will read them uh, in the future in the printed form make an effort to object to behavior that erodes privacy and help educate others to its dangers. I've made it my mission to start staring at people who talk loudly in their cell phones in public. I nod when they say something positive and laugh when they say something that sounds funny. I give them a thumbs up when they say something exciting. In general, I try to communicate to them that I am part of their conversation. Which I am, because they may be part of their conversation by bringing me into it. Now, there are many such techniques for alerting people when they are committing a self-invasion of privacy and thereby eroding everybody else's privacy as well. Uh, leave a message on somebody's Facebook wall, object to obnoxious blog posts, and let people know why you are doing it. Not that you're objecting to the content, but you're objecting to the fact that it is eroding all of our privacy rights. Spread the word and let people know that this kind of behavior is destructive and will only make it easier for the government to spy on all of us. Now, the second step involves the government. We give up much by way of privacy, especially in dealing with electronic devices, because we're simply not aware of the privacy implications of much of the technology we use. Who really understood when we first started using cell phones that we were really carrying uh, tracking devices that, uh, and that every step we went from the minute we got a cell phone is recorded somewhere in a uh, phone company's database and can be retrieved by the government? Or who knew about the ability to track our movements in the internet when we first started web surfing? or about GPS metadata and photographs, or about the fact that the ARFID embedded on our fast track device, right? You get a fast track device because you don't have to stop at a toll booth. Well, that ARFID can be read in all sorts of places, in all sorts of intersections, and the government is putting in read ARFID readers all over the place. Um, so if you have a fast track device, you are pinging not just a toll booth, but um, whenever the government wants to know where you are. Many electronic devices, from smartphones and fast tracks to internet browsers and electronic meters, electric meters, have huge privacy implications that we know very little about. We are often sold on the convenience and ease of using them, but are told nothing about what we're giving up by way of privacy by embracing the new technology. But it's much harder to give up technology once you've started using it, it's become part of your life, and then you find out, oh, wait a minute, I'm carrying a tracking device. The time to learn about the privacy implications is at the time we first start adopting it. Now, I'm always reluctant to suggest more government regulation, and uh, it's really very rare for me to do so. I believe there is an important value in having individuals make informed decisions, and I think the government can help by adopting standards for how breaches of privacy are to be disclosed and mandating the disclosures in an easily accessible way 
before the new device is bought and put into use by us. Doing so will not only help us make informed choices, it will also set up a competition among manufacturers to give us devices that eliminate or minimize the privacy implications. Currently, there is no such incentive. Finally, the courts must take a far more realistic view of what is a reasonable expectation of privacy. Right now, the standard mode of analysis is that if you know, knowingly expose information to third parties, you can have no reasonable expectation of privacy. So if you have a pile of cash and hide it in your mattress, it's private and the government needs probable cause and probably a warrant in order to get into your house and open up your mattress uh, to find out how much money you have. But if you deposit the money with a bank, you have no constitutional right to have the information kept private. That's because you've disclosed it to the bank. Or if the phone company keeps records of calls you made and received, then you have knowingly disclosed to a third party whom you are calling, how? By dialing the phone number, and that information is not protected by the Fourth Amendment. Fortunately, I think it's not too late to turn back the clock on the privacy implications of most modern technology. The Supreme Court expressed itself willing to listen in the Quan case from last term, where Justice Kennedy's opinion cautioned that the court must proceed with care when considering the whole concept of privacy expectations in communications made on electronic equipment. The judiciary risks error by elaborating too fully on the Fourth Amendment implications of emerging technology before its role in society has become clear. So the Supreme Court will listen, but we must do our share by becoming aware of the privacy implications of many of the things we do, and by starting to impose a measure of discipline ourselves and those around us to ensure that the idea of a reasonable expectation of privacy retains some real meaning. Are you a Cato sponsor? If so, don't forget to take advantage of the 35% discount you receive off all books, ebooks, and selected merchandise in the online Cato store. If you're not a Cato sponsor, sign up today to take advantage of this discount, as well as be the first to get Cato research, special event invitations, and more. For more information, visit cato.org support. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.